You and I have absolutely everything in Christ Jesus. But it's like daily we forget that. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's Word. In this episode, we talk about the church, not the building, but a group of people who follow Christ together. Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James showing us what the Bible says about God's divine plan. Thanks for listening. We are now working through the book of Ephesians, and the question that we are asking ourselves is, who is the church? We're going to start from the beginning of all of this and look at God's divine plan here tonight. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, and here we read the following. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we are, we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Um, About 20 years ago, the guy who might be currently recognized as the biggest filmmaker in the world, uh, whose name is Christopher Nolan, sort of burst onto the American movie scene when he released his first major movie called Memento. And uh, Memento, again, is about 20 years old now, but it's a movie about a guy named Leonard Shelby who is trying throughout the course of the movie to solve the murder of his wife. Now, that's complicated by the fact that while his wife was murdered, he was struck on the head so hard by the assailant that he developed a rare condition called enterograde amnesia, which uh, enterograde amnesia essentially, so far as I can tell, means that you cannot form long-term memories. So you can, you can interact in conversation for like 30, maybe 40 or 50 seconds, but once something is out of your present consciousness, once it escapes your short-term memory and has to go into your long-term memory, it's no longer able to do that. So you can easily forget a conversation that you had five minutes ago. Uh, for that matter, you forget everything after you go to bed at night and fall asleep and it moves out of your consciousness. And so that obviously 
makes doing something like solving a murder very tricky uh, on top of the already, already the difficulty of it. Uh, but Leonard develops some skills along the way. So he takes really good notes. He's got post-its everywhere. He takes Polaroids of everything. He actually tattoos onto his body different clues that he deems really important. And it makes for, honestly, a pretty good gimmick for a movie, uh, the whole concept. But just like any other good movie, the movie is not really as much about the narrative flow as it is about the underlying themes in it. And very clearly the theme of the movie is about truth and the nature of truth and identity. And see, there's this, you can tell that because there's this pivotal spot throughout the course of the movie when it's, it's pretty early actually, where Leonard Shelby uh, is, is speaking with his good, but kind of, we learn crooked friend named Teddy. And Teddy says to him, Leonard, you don't even know who you are. And Leonard says, yes, I know who I am. I'm Leonard Shelby. And Teddy turns to him and says, no, that's who you were maybe it's time that you actually started investigating yourself. And from there, the film sort of unravels with this series of revelations whereby Leonard realizes who he believed himself to be was just a construction of his own false notions of himself. He goes through an identity crisis because he doesn't know who he truly is anymore. And what this tells us, amongst other things, is we learn you are not who you just think you are, how you behave dictates what you believe. In other words, unless we know who we actually are, we don't know how to behave in life. And this is uh, not a bad summary of what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across in the message of Ephesians. Ephesians is entirely about your identity in Christ, Christian identity, and arguably what it would suggest is the world's fundamental problem is the fact that humanity has forgotten who we are by nature, who we were created to be as God's children, created in God's images, as worshipers of God Almighty. And what sin leads us to do is it leads us to define ourselves by anything or anyone apart from Jesus Christ. And we see this all the way, even back at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, one of the first revelations about humanity is this story at the Tower of Babel, where we have a group of people who are very clearly defying God. And they're constructing this tower up to the heavens because they want to play the role of God in their own lives. And why are they doing it? So very specifically, it says, because they want to make a name for themselves. They're trying to construct a false identity apart from God's goodness. And that is arguably the main struggle of every human being. Uh, we are trying to build something apart from the goodness of God. And it, essentially, what God is encouraging us to do is repent of our false identities, return to God's grace in the identity found in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we'll find healing to some of the issues in life that plague us. Again, you are not what has been done to you. You are what Jesus Christ has done for you. You are not what you do. You are who God has made you in Christ. Now, before we go on any further, it's probably worth mentioning at this point that Ephesians is, is basically structured into two equal 
uh, equally long parts anyways. Uh, it's the first three chapters and then chapters four through six. And the first part is basically about God's plan of sending his son in the world to bring salvation to humanity. And the second part, the last three chapters are about how does this new identity that we find in Christ, how do, does that relate or apply to the practical everyday aspects of life? How does my new identity in Christ, how does it relate to my marriage? How does it relate to my work? How does it relate to my uh, relationship with material things? How does it relate to my sexuality? How does it relate to all that kind of stuff? That's the second part. But we're just starting the first part tonight. And the first part, again, it's got, there's three subsections, the first three chapters. The first chapter is God's plan, his predestined plan from all eternity for his people. The second chapter is God sending his son into the world to carry out that plan and make us God's children. Uh, This is what gives us the basis of the Christian church. And the third part, chapter three, is the Apostle Paul's role in sharing a universal gospel, the one thing every human being needs, with a very diverse people group in the Gentiles. Okay, but again, tonight we're looking at just that first part, God's plan for humanity, God's divine plan, and how it is to place us in the identity of Jesus Christ. One other thing, before we just look at a text, uh, we should probably learn a little bit about who these Ephesian people are. So the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul first gets there in about 53 AD. And he doesn't stay there very long, but he's there doing his mission work. And a couple years later, he comes back and he's then there for two and a half years. And that is the longest time that he spends in any one of his mission churches. And he spends so much time there because he's so successful. So despite the fact that he faces an incredible amount of opposition, uh, the Lord extraordinarily blesses his evangelism work. And uh, what we find then is that the, the church in Ephesus becomes like the training ground for a significant amount of Christian leaders in the early church. So um, the husband-wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, are trained there and work there. And Luke works there. And John works there. And Titus works there. And Apollos works there. And all of the, like the who's who of the early church planters, a lot of them get their starts here in Ephesus. What we should also know about the city is this. Um, The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to them in about 62 AD from his imprisonment in Rome, but he's writing it to a city that is like this large metropolitan city of about 250,000 people. And what's unique about the city, they they host one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there, the Temple of Artemis or Temple of Diana. And it was actually not just a unique um, idol in and of itself, but it actually housed a lot of the greatest artwork in the world. So it was a center of arts, fine arts. It was a center, everything that goes around a temple. Like, so it's not just paganism in general, it's big economy because there's idol making going on in all of this. So it's part of the industry of the city. It's part of the economics of the city. Uh, There's a significant amount of prostitution that goes on collected with temple worship at that time. So all of that factors into this. This is part of the reason. It's also, um, interestingly, uh, one of the sources in the world of, for lack of a better term, like paranormal activity. So demonic uh, type of uh, investment and uh, pagan spiritualism. We know this in part because in Acts 19, uh, the apostle, excuse me, Dr. Luke actually tells us that there is a book burning ceremony that takes place. 
and it's books of pagan spiritual uh, like incantations and demonic activity and stuff like that. And Luke says that 50,000 days wages worth of books are burned. So several million dollars worth of literature are burned. Why? Because Ephesus, so much of it is converting to Christianity that they're like, we want to throw out that old pagan religion. So the Christian movement in Ephesus is impacting and overturning pretty much everything, the economy uh, and the people, everything. This is also the reason why the Apostle Paul emphasizes the concepts of demonic activity, spiritual warfare, and victory in Christ in Ephesians more than any other place in the New Testament, okay? So with that said, let's look at our text. And look, if that looks like one just, just one big blob of text, I get it. And if I read this a couple minutes ago and you thought to yourself after you heard that, I have no idea what that means. Like you just said a lot of Christian sounding stuff, no idea what it means. Um, you know, I get it. In fact, I would say when I was a kid and I would listen to sermons, and I'm being generous when I say I was a kid, I was probably 20 years old, um, and I would listen, listen to sermons. Um, if you would have said, to, you know, my family was in church every week, I was sitting there watching the pastor and probably had a smile on my face every week. And if you said to me after the sermon, did you hear the sermon? I would have said, yes, I did. And if you said, can you tell me what the sermon was about? I would say, no clue. And that was, it was sounded like, it was a lot of like spiritual white noise. You know, like a lot of Christian sounding words sort of smashed together, but they didn't like resonate in my head or heart in any kind of significant way. And I thought, honestly, for a long time, I thought maybe that was the preacher's fault. And, you know, there is some burden on the preacher to communicate things as clearly as possible. But I know that the disconnect was probably as much or more uh, my fault than anything. And I know that. Why? Because when I read the Apostle Paul in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, I get that same kind of feel where my eyes gloss over and I don't know, like, what was that? And so, and if that's inspired by the Spirit, it means the problem is with me, probably not with the one who's doing the communication. What you got to do in sections of the Bible like this is you have to break it down as simple as possible and tear it apart to like the main verbs and main concepts. And actually, when you do that, what you find is it becomes pretty clear here because the three major parts of this text go like this. First of all, we find out the fact that the Father, God the Father, predestined us. You notice how many times it uses words like choose or predestined or selected and what that means is from eternity past, God selected us to be his own. He selected us not because we were holy, but to make us holy. He didn't select us because we were lovable. He selected us to make us lovely. He didn't select us because we're beautiful. He selected us to make us beautiful. That's the concept, right? From God the Father's perspective, you were saved the moment he chose you from eternity's past. And don't get too hung up on that word predestination either. Uh, some Christians do. Most don't, but some do. And look, predestination is like an insider. It's like a family secret. It's only beneficial to believers. It's only beneficial for us recognizing that from eternity past, how well does God know you and how much does God love you? From eternity past, he knew you, he chose you, he loved you. And in the fulfillment of all history, he has orchestrated every event to help usher you on the pathway that he has laid out and predestined for you. That's why it's helpful, okay? Now, the second main part of the text is the fact that the son redeemed us. And he didn't just redeem us in general, he redeemed us for adoption. And here's what this means. 
so God the Father had a plan. His, son, his plan involved sending his son into the world to go to the cross to pay for all of our sins. And when he did so, he freed us from the enslavement of our spiritual enemies, sin, death, and the power of the devil. And he listened to the Father's plan and he chased us into this world in order to rescue you. And from the, the son's perspective, you were saved the moment he paid for all of your sins on the cross the moment he redeemed you like that. But also notice this, when he redeemed you, that doesn't just mean he took your sins away. It does mean that that's only half of it. And unfortunately, when Christians like decimate the gospel into only half of what it is, they, there's all sorts of pathologies that come out of that. If your understanding of the gospel is simply that Jesus died and took all of your sins away, that's not enough. Because that is functionally what that is, is it's redemption to a second chance. Um, you know, if Jesus came down and he died on the cross and he wiped all your sins away, great, I can start over. I will screw that up before I leave the building. If Jesus redeemed me to a second chance or he redeemed me even to a third chance, if he only showed me that much grace, that's not enough because I'm not good enough to, to fulfill that. The grace of Jesus Christ is so big that not only does it take away all of your sins, but he gifts to you his righteousness. In other words, his payment is not only for the, the infractions of your sins, but it's also to adopt you into God's family. And he does that when? It's in your baptisms, because it's at your baptisms that he legally places his name upon you, right? You're baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's at that moment, again, adopted into the family, welcomed into the family, that's when God starts talking about inheritance. You notice it's an interesting word there in verse 14, deposit guarantees our inheritance. Inheritance, it's important to understand the difference between an inheritance and a wage. They both end up in the same place. In both places, you get good things, but a wage you get there because you work really hard. An inheritance you don't get because you work really hard. An inheritance you get because somebody else worked really hard, you are relationally connected to that person, and that person dies and gives you all their good stuff. So what is the gospel? Jesus Christ came into the world, worked really hard, made a way for us to be adopted into God's family through our baptisms. And then when he died, everything that he owned from heaven to earth and everything in between, which belonged to him, now belongs to us for all eternity. You were redeemed, again, for this inheritance. Um, okay, so from the father's perspective, we are saved the moment that the father chose us. From the son's perspective, we are saved the moment Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And we said, your salvation is not about your goodness. It's about Jesus' goodness, Jesus' death, Jesus' empty tomb, Jesus' completed work, and your adoption into Jesus. And then the third part of this, then, is the Holy Spirit who seals us by faith. He, he takes what Jesus Christ did at the cross and at the empty tomb, and he subjectively makes it real in our hearts. Jesus objectively did something 2,000 years ago on Calvary, but the Holy Spirit takes that and appropriates it and subjectively makes it real in our hearts. So from the Father's perspective, you were saved the moment he chose you. The Son's perspective, you were saved the moment he died for your sins on the cross. But the Holy Spirit's perspective, you were saved the moment he planted saving faith in your heart by which you trusted that what Jesus did was true and it was for you specifically. And what Paul says here is, it, it, he gives us a seal because he's planted inside of us. Now, a wax seal in the Roman Empire, that meant two big things. It meant uh, ownership and it meant security moving forward. 
And when you profess, when the Lord, the Holy Spirit leads you to profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that means you have a seal, a down payment for what you will be eternally. And at some point in eternity's future, once you pass into the next life, everything in your life will finally come into harmony and congruity with what you profess with Jesus as Lord. So even though today you profess Jesus as Lord, but you don't always live exactly like everything in your life is as if Jesus is Lord, one day you will. And the spirit and the profession of Jesus Christ is that, that down payment foreshadowing that. Okay, so that's the text. Those are the three main points of the text, but the, honestly, the big idea here today, both in this text and through all of Ephesians, a big idea for the whole letter is actually a little bit different. And that's what I wanna share with you next. It's here in the text, but it's in the prepositions. Now, almost never when you're reading something is the big idea and the main idea in the prepositions, but in Ephesians, it 100% is. Why? Well, what we find out in the prepositions of Ephesians is God is creating for us a new identity in Christ Jesus, a new identity in him. In fact, if you actually carefully comb through the whole text, just in the first 14 verses, you know how many times it says in Christ? 11 times in 14 verses. There's no other spot in the Bible that's anything like that. Uh, and it's just caught up again and again and again. I mentioned earlier, this is in Greek, it's over 200 words. It's all one long run-on sentence. We would never write like this, but Paul, the Paul is led by the Holy Spirit and getting caught up in the goodness of God and the implications of what it means to be, have your identity wrapped up in, in Christ Jesus. It's used 11 times in these verses. It's used like 40 times throughout the entire letter. And most of the best commentators on Ephesians will tell you, yeah, that's what the book's about. In fact, uh, here's give you a couple examples. Uh, one commentator said, union with Christ gives humans, uh, human beings a radically new identity. We have put off the old self, the old humanity, and put on the new. Another commentator said, the main idea of Ephesians is identity formation in Christ. And another one said, Paul wrote this letter to affirm the Ephesians in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them. One other commentator puts it like this, which I thought was good. He said, from my perspective, in Christ, that phrase, in Christ, it outstrips the term Christian in describing Christianity. Aside from the fact that the word Christian is actually only used three times in the New Testament, that title allows for something of an ambiguous interpretation. It can be used for one who has a specific cultural affinity. It can be used for someone who just practices the Western tradition. Almost everybody in the Western world for the past 500 or 1,000 years is self-identified as Christian because that's culturally what they were, you know? That's what their mom was, that's what their dad was, that's what their grandparents were. It can be used for one who lives on the other side of a barbed wire and is killing those on the other side. Uh, but in Christ, that phrase invites no such abuse because it demands reflection on a dynamic living relationship. Now, here's the thing. I'm not trying to erase the word Christian from your vocabulary, but I think you understand the point that the commentator is making here, right? Unfortunately, that label of Christian has been co-opted by many people throughout history to suit their own personal agendas. But in Christ is different. A living relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely different. And the big idea of all of Ephesians then is the triune God has placed you into the sphere of Jesus Christ. We're united to Christ that gives us a new identity. 
We get grace in him. We get every spiritual blessing in him. And actually every good thing we have comes from being in him. So now moving forward, unlike the rest of your world, your identity is not built on who you know. Your identity is not built on what you do or what you fail to do. And your identity is not built on who you're better at than what. Your identity is gifted to you in Christ, an identity united to him, and you'd find your true self when you allow yourself to be lost in him and his identity. Now, what does that mean? It's still kind of like weird, esoteric, spiritual language sometimes. So let me make it a little bit more practical, okay? Uh, An identity in him. What does it look like on a personal level? Last couple minutes. On a personal level and on like a social, collective church level. On a personal level, look at it like this. Your physical life, your, your physical life, who you are ethnically, uh, your size, your language, your culture, it's essentially just the working out of your physical DNA, right? Um, you are essentially the product physically of who your DNA always from the beginning, the moment you became a human being, you are now the product of what your DNA said you were going to be physically. Okay, well, what about spiritually? When you get baptized into the name of the triune God, it's like you get new spiritual genetic material implanted inside of you. And just like your physical life is essentially the outworking of your physical DNA over the course of the years, your new life in Christ is the outworking of divine DNA that God the Holy Spirit has planted inside of you. You see, you're adopted to God's family, but you're not only his legally, you are that but you're also his like organically and vitally because his spirit actually lives inside of you. Now we said this earlier, uh, someone who now knows who they are in him, only that person knows how they are to live moving forward. Who you, who you believe you are is what brings about what flows out in your life. And a couple quick illustrations of that. One of my favorite ones is, it's this really old preaching illustration that's been around for literally like a couple millennia, but it's of one of the most important early church fathers, St. Augustine of Carthage. Uh, St. Augustine wrote, wrote one of the most influential Christian works in history called his Confessions. And it's really, people who are like transparent on social media and stuff, they would love Augustine's Confessions because he's like, it's like bizarre in how candid he is and how he talks about his um his, his promiscuity, pre-conversion, even after his conversion, his struggles with sexual temptation. And actually, there's kind of a famous story where uh, Augustine was, he was an academic who traveled at times from town to town and would speak uh, around the Mediterranean. And supposedly, some had said he had like a mistress, pre-conversion, a mistress in every city. And one of the stories says that he was in one town at one point after his conversion, he was walking through the city and one of his former mistresses came up to him and started trying to talk to him. And he was cordial and he was respectful, but he kept his eyes forward and he just kept walking very briskly and moving ahead. And she thought to herself, wait a second, is it possible that he did not you know, recognize me? I changed my hair a little bit, but he should, I think, feel like he should remember me. And so she runs after him says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he just keeps walking and shouts out in response, I know, but it is not I. In other words, the guy that you hooked up with a long time ago, he doesn't live here anymore, he's dead. And the spirit of God now lives in me and I'm wrapped up in Christ. 
Now, I got to tell you, there's some debate about the veracity of that story as to whether or not it's actually true. But for illustration purposes, it doesn't really matter uh, because it illustrates really well the concept of when you transform by the Spirit, you become a new person. You now know who you are in Him because you have a new identity. Now, contrast that with, so here's a different illustration. There's a, a woman that the Guinness Book of World Records is called America's Worst Miser in History. Her name's Hetty Green. And she was known famously kind of as the Witch of Wall Street. And she died in 1916 with an estimated estate of over $100 million. So over $100 million in, in 1916. But every day she ate cold oatmeal. Why? Because she didn't want to pay to heat oatmeal. And she actually had a son who had his leg amputated because he had an infection that could have easily been treated if she was just willing to pay for his visit to go to the doctor's office. But she wasn't willing to do it. In other words, Hetty Green is essentially famous not just for being rich, but for being unthinkably wealthy, but living as though she was bankrupt. Unthinkably wealthy currently living as though she's bankrupt. That is an unfortunately accurate analogy for the way a lot of us Christians tend to live. You and I have absolutely everything in Christ Jesus. You are heirs that are part of an eternal royal family. You have paradise in heaven waiting for you. You have the down payment of the Holy Spirit in your life that guarantees this. You have God saying, I'm going to provide for every one of your needs until you get to that paradise. You have the Spirit of God manning the entire ship. But it's like daily we forget that. Every, every morning you wake up and you've totally forgotten who you are. Um, someone who knows who they are in him has a new identity and who you, what you do flows from who you believe you actually are. You're not broke. You're eternally rich. You're not lost. You know exactly where you're going. You have no reason to be afraid because God is on your side. The primary identity of a believer in Christ is not as a sinner, but as a saint. It's important for us to acknowledge our sin, but it's equally important for us to say that is not what defines us. While you still struggle with sin in this life as a Christian, your sin doesn't define you. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, that is what defines you. And so while sin might explain some of your behavior, it does not define your identity. Your identity is what? Your identity is you are a redeemed saint with your entire future wrapped up in him to such an extent that even you can't screw it up moving forward. Now, when you get a bunch of people who have that mentality and a bunch of people who are living out of that new identity in Christ, you get something called a church. Now, what's the church? One of the ways to define what the church is designed to do is the church is a lens that the world gets to look through in order to see the kingdom power of Jesus Christ. Now, the world does not naturally know it. The world does not naturally understand the way it is supposed to be. That's why the Apostle Paul uses the word in here. He uses it a couple times in Ephesians, but in our text too. He calls it a mystery because no human naturally understands the way things are supposed to be or the way things, how they got to this place. But what God designs the church to do is it's a lens that the world gets to look through in order to see a community of people who operate differently so that... When the world through, looks through the lens of the church, uh, it sees a group of people who maintain joy even when they've lost their loved ones. Because those loved ones aren't gone, those loved ones are home. 
and I'm going to be home soon too. And so my goodbye is this temporary goodbye. I'll see them again soon. I'll hug them again soon. I'll love them for forever. So I won't mourn like the rest of the world that has no hope. And when the world looks through the lens of the church, what it's supposed to see, is it supposed to be see a community of people who, do they ever sin against one another? Oh, yep, they struggle with sin just as much as seemingly everybody else, but they know how to reconcile because they have forgiveness. And they understand that, that God has forgiven them an infinite amount and an undeservedly loved them in that forgiveness, and therefore they're able to show that same kind of reconciliation with others. So they don't live lives spent in bitterness, and they don't spend their lives in vengeance like the rest of the world tries to do. When the world looks through the lens of the church, what it's supposed to see is a community of people who recognize different cultural behaviors as a little bit complicated, but nonetheless good, and embrace that which is different, and always give people, unlike ourselves, the benefit of the doubt. When the world looks through the lens of the church, it is supposed to see people who generously give of their wealth both to God and to one another because after all, it all belongs to him in the first place. We're just managing it for a little while here on earth. All this stuff is passing away and we get like thousands of times this for all eternity. So what big deal is it to hold on to it right now? You understand what I'm saying? The world is supposed to look through the lens of the church in order to see a community of believers and be able to investigate Friendships, marriages, economics, race relations, mental health, social healing, and see how it actually is supposed to work. The world is supposed to be able to look through the lens of the Christian church and see the goodness that comes when everything is brought under the headship of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in this text, he said, God has made known to us this mystery of his will, which is what? It's a couple, it's a lot of words, so you have to kind of truncate the middle and, and shrink it down. But he's made it known to us to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ Jesus. If things and people and communities and you come together under the headship of Jesus Christ, they get healed. They get healed politically and psychologically, socially, spiritually. Who are you? You are an essential part of God's body through whom his spirit is trying to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.